All right, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question for you to answer to yourself. Are you a, are you a tell me or a show me type of person? You, do you prefer a long, drawn-out explanation of something, or maybe you prefer more of a flesh-and-blood example of what that explanation looks like in real life. I'm sure while explanation is helpful and necessary, uh, most of us really appreciate when the truths that, we've been, that have been explained to us are put to flesh and blood, that, are, that we see an example of what is actually being explained to us. You don't want to just hear the truth proclaimed, you want to see the truth lived. And up to this point in the book of Colossians, we've been reading a lot of truth. We've been, we've been reading and examining and talking through some very deep theology, the preeminence of Christ, His supremacy overall, that Christ is over everything. That's the theme of this whole book of Colossians. What would it look like to see this theology applied to the life of a person, to a Christian? At this point in our passage, in verse 24, the Apostle Paul is going to shift his focus a little bit from explaining to giving an example. We ended last week in verse 23 where he is talking about the reconciliation of Christ, that he, is, he, is rede he has redeemed us, he's rescued us, and we have been given this gospel, we are to stand firm in this gospel and remember it. And then he says, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. And at that point he pivots to his ministry and gives an example of what exactly it looks like to have a Jesus filled life. Have you ever met somebody who's just filled with Jesus? It's clear, it's obvious that Jesus Christ is over everything in their life. If you have, I'm sure it's left an impact on you. If you haven't, what would it look like? As every single one of us as Christians are seeking to become more and more like Jesus Christ in our personal walks, it's helpful to be able to look into an example and see if someone truly internalized and applied this truth that Christ is over everything, what would it look like? And that's what we'll see in our passage today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We'll read down through the end of the chapter, verse 29. He says, Who now, speaking of himself, rejoice in my sufferings for you, which fill up which is behind in the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church? Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would guide us this morning as we look in your word. As we look even at Paul's example of a Jesus-filled life, help us, Lord, to make more of you in our daily walks. Help us, Lord, to reflect your preeminence and how we live, and how we interact with one another. Guide us as we look in your word this morning. Help us to be faithful to it, and help us to apply it faithfully. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned during the last two Sundays, we explored the deep theology of Christ's preeminence. 
We observe that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, which really serves as a basis for all the arguments that Paul's going to set forth in this letter. The preeminence of Christ is the reason why he refutes the false teachers. It's the reason why Jesus is sufficient. These verses spoke of his work of reconciliation, delivering us from darkness to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Christ is over everything. And if that is actually true, and if it's actually believed, it changes everything about our lives. But as we mentioned at the beginning, sometimes it's good to get an illustration, a real-life example of what it would look like for someone who has truly embraced the preeminence of Christ. What would it look like to have a Jesus-filled life? As I mentioned, if we were to look back at verse 23, the end of the verse, he concludes, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verses 24 through 29, in a sense, is an elaboration on that ministry. And in the process, he gives us a practical example of someone who is filled with Jesus Christ. Ask yourself that question in your own life. If my life was filled with Christ, if everything about me reflected the preeminence of him over everything in my life, what would it look like practically? How would I live? How would it look differently than how I'm living right now? How would my approaches to trials change? How would my interactions with others change? What would be the message of my life? As we look at the example of Paul, we see first of all in verse 24 through 25 that a Jesus-filled life shows that Jesus is the master. Down in verse 25, well, how does Paul describe himself? He describes himself as a minister to the church. And that word minister means servant, diakonos, where we get deacon. He was a servant to the church. Paul says that he was commissioned to serve the church by making the word of God fully known to them. There in verse 25, this was the dispensation of God, or perhaps your English versions say the commission of God, or perhaps the appointment of God. Some English versions use the word stewardship here. That Paul was a servant with a responsibility, a stewardship from God, and he sees this as so worth his while that he rejoices even in the sufferings he experiences because of his task. We see that in verse 24. Because I'm this minister of the gospel for the church, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. So if Jesus is over everything, then that makes us his servants, his stewards. And what a privilege that is. What a reason to rejoice. There are two ways to look at life. One, Jesus is the master, or two, I am the master. And every single person in this room is functioning under one of those two mottos. I am the master. If I am the master, then suffering, I avoid suffering at all costs. I seek to be noticed. I live life for personal fulfillment and happiness. But if Jesus is the master, what does that look like? Well, it looks exactly as it did in Paul's life. He accepted suffering joyfully. He sought to magnify Christ, to live for his glory. Which way are you living? Consider Paul's example, and in particular, consider the joy he experiences. If you look with me in verse 24... Verse 24 contains two parallel ideas with really the second phrase fleshing out the first. The first phrase makes a simple statement, but the second phrase connects everything to Christ. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
In the first phrase, we see sufferings, but in the second half of the verse, that idea of suffering is fleshed out, and he describes it as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He says, I suffer for your sake, and in the second half of the verse, he fleshes the for your sake idea out and says, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So in other words, as a servant of Christ, as one commissioned by Christ, Paul is rejoicing that he is suffering for the Colossians' sake. But Paul is so filled with Jesus that it changes how he views both his service and the suffering he is experiencing because of that service. And he points to the fact that he is suffering with Christ. Look at how Paul's allegiance to Christ reframes the suffering he experiences as a result of his ministry. Suffering in ministry isn't just suffering. He phrases it as filling up what's lacking in the affliction of Christ. Now, this may be a confusing phrase. What in the world does it mean to say that there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions? In what sense is there a lack in Christ's afflictions? Are we saying here that his death on the cross was insufficient? I hope that's not what we're saying. This phrase isn't saying that there was something lacking in Christ's redemptive suffering that we need to add to or complete his sacrifice, but rather that Christ foretold that following Christ would, share, would, to, would be to share in the sufferings of Christ, that really sufferings for Christ is part of the package. To live for Jesus without experiencing affliction for it is abnormal. You're, you're missing something. You're lacking something. And so Paul frames it as filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. It frames sufferings as appropriate, expected, necessary. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so that Christ's we share abundantly in comfort as well. We read of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they first started preaching and the religious leaders are trying to stop them in their mission. Acts chapter 5 verse 40 says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease to teach and preach that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. And so these apostles, Paul in particular, sees sufferings as part of the package that I am suffering with Christ. I am sharing in Christ's sufferings. A life filled with Jesus is a life that views suffering as part of the package. Is that how you view suffering? He continues and shows how suffering is for Christ. The beginning of verse 24, he says, I'm suffering for your sake, speaking to the Colossians. This is why he's rejoicing, but in the second phrase of verse 24, he rephrases it and he describes the Colossians as part of his body, the church. So to suffer for your sake, he's saying, is to suffer for the church's sake, and to suffer for the church's sake is to suffer for the body of Christ, and to suffer for the body of Christ is to suffer for Jesus. A life filled with Jesus is a life that is others-focused. If we were to internalize and apply this principle from Paul, it would look like serving your church family is to serve Christ. That it's, every bit, it's, it's worth every bit of suffering. Why? Because Jesus is everything. He's all I need. He is the master. And so Paul, right here in verses 24 through 25, through his own testimony and example, says, Christ is sufficient. My suffering is a joy. I'm suffering for Christ. I'm suffering with Christ. And it's worth it. As the old hymn goes, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, 
all my being's ransom powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Is Jesus your master? Do you see yourself as his humble servant, suffering for his sake and for his glory? And you'll only live this way if the truths of Colossians 1, 15 through 23 fill your heart. If Christ is preeminent, if he is reconciling all things, including me, to himself, he has done it all, he owns it all, he made it all, he redeemed it all, then I am his servant, and I rejoice in every bit of suffering that comes as a result of living for the sake of his body, the church. That is a Jesus-filled life. As Paul continues expounding his example as an apostle, he directs our attention to that stewardship, that mission to which he has been appointed. His whole life is dedicated to one thing. If you look at the end of verse 25, his whole life is dedicated to this one thing, to make the word of God fully known. That's why he's suffering. But what is the content of this message exactly? So we see not only is Jesus the master in a Jesus-filled life, but secondly, Jesus is the message. In verses 26 through 27, Paul dives into the very essence of his message, the core of his teaching. If we remember that there's false teachers and heresies swirling about in the Colossian church, Paul is writing this letter to combat against those false teachings, to make sure the Colossians are secure in Christ. And really, to perhaps steal the language of the false teachers, Paul is, in a sense, sharing the secret sauce to spiritual success. And he describes it in such a way that might pique the interest of those swayed by the heretical teachers. In verses 26 through 27, there's a key word that keeps showing up, mystery. Paul has a mystery to share. And why, what makes this particularly relevant is in their day, mystery cults and mystery religions were very common. What's a mystery religion? Theological dictionaries define it as a diverse religious movement characterized by secretive initiation rituals and syncretistic practices. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds like the heresy that the Colossian church was dealing with. Syncretism, a combination of multiple religious movements, secretive initiation rituals. Remember, if you can experience more, you can do more, you can get into the inner circle. The Colossian heresy that was being introduced is very much a type of a mystery cult. And Paul might have been using this term mystery polemically to draw a contrast between the mystery religions and the mystery of Christianity. But these two mysteries could not be any more different. Mystery does not mean the same thing in both cases, which we'll see here in a bit. But verses 26 to 27 really build the suspense and heighten the anticipation. Look with me in verse 26. The mystery is hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Whatever this mystery is, it's been completely hidden in past generation, Paul says. Old Testament saints were not privileged with knowing this mystery. It's a mystery previously hidden, but now revealed. Verse 27, he says, To them, which is the saints, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So here he's emphasizing the recipients. Who gets to know this mystery? Well, it's the saints. The Gentiles, they get to see how the experience, the riches of the glory of this mystery. And this would include the Colossians. This is a rich and glorious mystery. And guess who God has revealed it to? You. And so before he even specifies the mystery, Paul's making a clear point to the Colossians. This mystery has been revealed 
it's available to you. In fact, you have already experienced it in its fullness. You already know this mystery in its entirety. And this is what distinguishes it from the mystery of mystery religions. The mystery is not a secret formula only available to the initiated, nor is it a mystery that we might th- as we might think of it, like a complex puzzle that can only be solved through deductive reasoning and investigation, right? We're not talking about Sherlock Holmes. We're not talking about a whodunit mystery novel. That's not what we're talking about when we see the word mystery. When we see mystery in Scripture, this is what we should think of, that it is previously hidden, now revealed. That's what the word mystery means in Christianity. We saw even in 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of our service, another instance of, the, of a mystery, talking about the nature of our future resurrection. Behold, I tell you a mystery. In Ephesians chapter 3, if you were to look at that passage, he talks about the mystery of Jews and Gentiles coming together to form one new man. And in both cases, these were truths previously hidden and now revealed. And so what is this mystery? What is this mystery that Paul is proclaiming and has already been revealed to the Colossian church? Verse 27 tells us succinctly, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In connection with Ephesians 3, he points to the fact that the Gentiles are included in this mystery. Christ himself is not the mystery, but rather the fact that it is Christ in you, the indwelling of of Christ into the hearts of of Gentiles. That's the mystery that Jesus has been freely and fully given to the Colossians. They get all of Jesus. They receive his death and his life. His accomplishment on the cross and his resurrection from the dead becomes their hope of glory. If you flip ahead even to Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 through 4, we see the practical outgrowth of this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, where he tells the Colossian believers in chapter 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's what the Colossians have received. You have received this mystery. It's already been revealed to you. It's not hidden. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to take these secret initiative steps. You already have it, and it's been revealed to you fully and plainly. You've already experienced it. It's Christ in you, the, <clears throat> Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul does not point to a philosophy, to a code, to a system, to a list of rules. He points to a person, Jesus Christ. Christ in you is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in you is your hope of glory. And this is the message that is worth all the blood, sweat, and tears that Paul has spilled on behalf of the church. Jesus is the message that he is proclaiming. That's exactly what he says at the beginning of verse 28. Him we proclaim. Jesus is the message. A Jesus-filled life is a life that makes Jesus the message. Is that the message of your life? Is it a philosophy, a code, a system, a list of rules? Or is the very message of your life Jesus Christ? Mom and Dad, what's your greatest mission? To make Jesus known to your kids. That they grow up not finding hope in a list of rules, but finding hope in the person of Christ. Showing your kids the riches of his grace. Setting the gospel before your kids as much as possible. Is that your message even to your children? 
Husband, what is your greatest mission? To live in such a way that your life, your wife sees the life of Jesus in you. That your wife sees his love, his service, his grace in you. Jesus is your message. Wives, what is your greatest mission? To live in such a way that your husband sees Jesus in you. That he is the message of your life. A Jesus-filled life is a life that makes Jesus the message. And Paul says, my whole life, everything I've suffered for, everything I preach is to proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. And he adds nothing else to that. Teenager, what's your greatest mission? To place your hope in the reality of Christ in you. That you are his child. That his life is your life. That you have full access to the riches of this mystery. And you can, through your life, proclaim Jesus to your friends, to your classmates, your siblings. You can make Jesus your message. Is Jesus the message of your life? Is he the hope of your life? Has Jesus so captivated your affections that you stake your identity in him and him alone, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. May he be the message of your life. Paul, in his example of a Jesus-filled life, has declared Jesus to be his master and his message, but in verse 28, he describes how he goes about proclaiming that message and sets forth Jesus as the very measurement of growth. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the measurement. Read with me in verse 28 of our passage. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you're English Bible says perfect, it means communicating the idea of maturity or completeness. Because Paul has a Jesus-filled life, he considers himself as a servant of Jesus, proclaiming the message of Jesus with the purpose of seeing people become more like Jesus. His goal in his ministry was to present everyone mature in Christ. And as he sought this goal, he did it by warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, we read that we, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to how intensely Paul pursues this goal of Christ in you, of maturity in Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's a vivid illustration. What would it look like for a disciple of Christ to be so intent and so passionate about seeing others become more like Christ that the best illustration to use is the anguish of childbirth? That's how zealously Paul pursued this mission. Jesus is the measurement. False teachers were proclaiming a false perfection, the appearance of wisdom, but Paul was pursuing the real deal, and he wants you to be fully mature in Christ. This is exactly what he prayed for for the Colossians at the beginning of his letter in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, where he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
When we say Christ is enough, we are in no way discounting the necessity for growth. Christians are not those who sit back and passively cruise through life because they have Jesus. Instead, they are those who are passionately pursuing a greater maturity because Christ is all they need and it's all they have, and Christ is the measurement. If you're filled with Jesus, then Christ-likeness is your goal and the goal for those around you. He is the measurement. And so we must ask the question, what is the measurement in your life? What are your aspirations? What are you aiming toward? You know, I think our culture has offered us with, with two measurements for our, Christian, for our lives. You might boil them down to one of two things. Number one, self-actualization. That culture will hold out a particular attainment or achievement as the measurement. That if you look like this, act like this, live like this, you'll be happy. Self-actualization talks about achieving your fullest potential, right? Others in our culture will say, no, it's not necessarily self-actualization as much as it is self-realization. Be yourself. Who or what is the measurement in self-realization? You are. The more you that you can be, the happier that you are. And so our culture will uphold one or both of these as the measurement for your life. What's your fullest potential? How can you be the most you that you can be? Neither of these measurements are Christian measurements. Christ did not come to help you achieve your potential or to help you find yourself. He came to rescue a lost sinner, transform your life, and give you the grace to look more like Jesus. That's why he came. And this should be your goal for others as well. Do you want your friends to look more like Jesus? Are you helping them grow in Christ-like maturity? In your own life, what is your measurement? If I were fill-in-the-blank, I would be satisfied. How would you fill in that blank? What's your measurement? For Paul, Jesus was the only one. The thing that he labored for was to see other Christians become more like Jesus, look more like Jesus, become mature in Christ. Is that your desire? We were even talking this past week in our pastoral training with a, with a couple of guys that are going through that. How suffering in Scripture, we find joy in suffering because of what we know it produces. And, and, and what suffering in the Christian life produces is more Christ-likeness, right? Count on all joy when you suffer various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith works patience, and let patience have its perfect work. Romans chapter 5 says, says that, 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 uh, that suffering will produce character, and character endurance, and, char and, and endurance hope. And we can rejoice in our suffering because of that reason. But here's the problem. If we don't value Christ-likeness, then that, that's no incentive to us. Joy in trial is contingent on the fact that we actually want to become more like Christ. And if we don't want to become more like Christ, then there is no joy in trial, which is the very reason for that suffering. If Jesus is not your measurement, most likely you're kind of miserable in your trial right now. Because you're probably seeing your trial as a threat to whatever you're seeking to measure up to. But in Christ, when Jesus is our measurement, our suffering actually helps lead us more toward a maturity in Christ. 
Jesus is the master. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the measurement. And finally, as we conclude chapter 1, Paul points back to his own struggle, his own toil, and he credits it all to Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the means. He is the energy. He is the energizing factor in everything he does. That Paul is so consumed with this mission to present the believers maturing Christ that he toils and struggles for it. He says in verse 29, for this I toil. And he uses two words here that communicate strenuous effort, toil, or labor, striving, struggling. The word for striving there is used to describe an athlete's exertion in competition. If you look at the Greek word, the Greek word is agonizomai. Does that sound like an English word to you at all? Agonize. This is a sustained and intense effort to reach a particular goal. And Paul was struggling and straining and laboring and toiling so that others would become more mature in Christ. And again, the Christian life is not passivity. It is not a life of ease. It's a life of toil and struggle. But look at how Paul qualifies his statement in verse 29. Paul toils and struggles, but he does it with all his energy that he powerfully works within me, Paul says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul was someone who worked harder than anyone else you could possibly imagine, but in that toil and struggle, he said, every single bit of energy that I exert is Christ's grace in me. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. If you have a Jesus-filled life, you will have a Jesus-fueled life. When you focus your life around Jesus, when you make him your master, your message, your measurement, you know what happens? Jesus provides the energy and strength to do it. When you do what you are designed to do, God fuels the effort. But I think the problem is we count on God's grace to empower our own private endeavors. Jesus, I want to do this with my life. It's up to you to make it happen. Don't count on the empowering grace of Christ to fuel your own private endeavors. Jesus empowers you in the accomplishment of his mission for you, not the mission you've chosen for yourself. In the same way, don't count on the empowering grace of Christ to fuel your own passivity. The Christian life is not simply Jesus take the wheel or let go and let God. As if we're simply just along for the ride, we're cruising through the Christian life and God's going to drive. The Christian life, according to this passage, looks like toil and struggle as we pursue his mission for us. And as we do, he powerfully works within you and accomplishes it by his grace. So as we conclude this passage, this example of Paul, what is a Jesus-filled life. Well, a Jesus-filled Christian is one who sees himself as a servant of Jesus, carrying the message of Jesus with the purpose of growth and maturity in Jesus, 
empowered by the grace of Jesus. And we've seen this theology expounded in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, that he is preeminent, he is over all things. And then when we look in verses 24 through 29, we see this theology applied in Paul's personal example. Paul shows us through his life what it looks like to internalize and personalize the preeminence of Christ. And so we're left today with a series of questions as we look at this definition of a Jesus-filled life. Who is your master? Is Jesus your master in theory or in reality? What is the message of your life? What drives you? What defines you? What's the measurement of your life? What are you aiming toward? And by what means are you pursuing your mission? Is it, is it your own strength? Or is it the grace that God powerfully works within you? And if your answer to any of these questions is something other than Jesus Christ, then it's time to revisit the glorious mystery that has already been revealed to you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, the, the, the tendency that we have, and we see a failure in this point, I'm sure as we look at this definition and we think of our master and our message and our measurement, we automatically think of failures. None of us have fully achieved this. None of us can fully achieve this. But the answer is not okay. Let's think of all of the hoops and, and steps we have to go through in order to, in order to fix what's broken. No, we go back to the truth of Scripture. We go back to who Christ is, because Christ is the message. And we consider his preeminence, and we consider his gospel, and we consider his reconciling work on our behalf. And as we're transformed in the power of our minds, we see how the theology ends up applying to our lives. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is all you need to know. Live in accordance with that reality. Make Christ your life. Be filled with Jesus. Perhaps if you're here and, and you know Jesus is just not even a part of your life. Jesus is a name you've heard. Jesus is a way of life. It's a religion. It's something with, connected to Christianity. And you know little more than that. I hope even from this passage today you can, you've seen the difference, the transformation that living for Christ loving Christ, knowing Christ has on your life. And here's the good news. Because Christianity is not about jumping through certain hoops in order to earn God's favor, because it's not about a list of rules that you must do in order to, to, to earn salvation, but it's all about what Christ did for you on the cross, taking your sins, dying for you, being raised for you, then receiving this gift of Christ is an act of faith. It's, go, it's calling out to Christ and saying, Lord, be my Savior. Save me from my sins. I want to be your child. And when that happens, Christ is in you, and he becomes your hope of glory. And you can be a servant of Jesus who's carrying the message of Jesus with the purpose of maturity in Jesus, empowered by the grace of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for being everything to us, for offering every resource, every bit of grace and strength we need to live a life that's pleasing to you. Oftentimes when we look at examples like Paul, we can become overwhelmed and feel like we can never truly reach that level, but we remember that even Paul himself said of his own testimony, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 
thanks be to Jesus Christ that even Paul's hope was completely and solely on your son. Help that to be our testimony, Lord, as we grow, as we battle sin in our lives, as we navigate through trial, that you would be over everything, that we would be filled with you and not ourselves. Give us that grace.